What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. This year, a survey conducted by Tenga involving over 10,000 adults showed that people tend to feel the least interested in sex during fall months. Why is that? Today, I'm so pleased to be joined by Shan Boudram, a certified sex educator and intimacy expert with a wildly popular YouTube channel and mainstream coverage across all major TV networks, The New York Times, Forbes, and Time. Her latest awesome book, The Game of Desire, Five Surprising Secrets to Dating with Dominance, released by HarperCollins this year. We're going to talk about the Tenga findings, why many people still feel shame around solo play, and dating strategies you will not want to miss. Later in the show, we'll hear from Dr. Megan Fleming for a listener who's eager to know how to find her way around sexual pain she's experiencing with menopause. And if you enjoy what you hear today, please remember to head to augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org to sign up for extras by email. I send them about once a month. You can get freebies, discounts, and news about upcoming events. And while you're there, check out my Girl Boner book series, and you can drop me a note anonymously if you wish, if you have a question that you'd like answered on the show. Now, I'm so pleased to welcome Shan to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I loved that introduction. It was like beautifully truncated and just wonderfully relayed. So thank you for that. That's so sweet. Thank you. And I love your new book. Congratulations. (gasps) Thank you. It's wonderful. Um, So I really want to dive into that. Before we do... This report out by Tenga, the self-pleasure report, is really interesting. It's very fascinating. What struck you most about it? I mean, there's, to me, the clear relationship between how people feel about themselves and how often they touch themselves. There really is a very strong relationship between people who dedicate time to wellness overall who are like, this is a part of my wellness routine. Like self-pleasure is not separate. And I actually think that's something that's new. Uh, I have been speaking in the sex space for 13 years. And only now am I starting to see some inclusivity where there's a yoga event. Hey, let's also add uh, a sexual seminar into there. We're talking about health and diet. Let's also talk about sexuality. So you see a real trend with people starting to fully understand that sexuality is not separate. It is just one and the same when it comes to self-care. Yes. Thank goodness for that. Right. Because it really should be. It's it's a great stress reliever. It feels so good. And yet that report showed that 40 percent of people experience uh, enough shame to lie about their habits. Why do you think that is? I mean, I could probably ask you that question. What was your sexual upbringing? Like, uh-huh. what was your sex education growing up? It was very awkward. Yes. <laughs> I learned a little bit about male pleasure, or that it was a thing at least. And I learned some things I found very scary for me. And who was your main, like, go-to person? Who was your trusted advisor? I didn't really have an advisor because I was not really, it wasn't really talked about in yes. any of my circles. And my teacher, I remember I had a really strict teacher, and I was a really curious person, but you just pick up this vibe that if I ask a question, I'm going to get in trouble. So I, I didn't really know. And it's that curiosity has fueled me to this day. I think that the curiosity is there, but that there's still that hint of I might get in trouble. Mm-hmm. So when you've got 20 years, 18 years of a certain kind of conditioning, you are allowed to give yourself 
10 more years to really work yourself out of that. And even once we realize, okay, we're adults, we have autonomy over our bodies, there is ridiculous um, proof that orgasm is actually a healthy addition to our lives. And somebody who denies themselves of self-pleasure is losing out on a good blood pressure and losing out on a lot of great sleep and a lot of... extra adrenaline, a lot of extra happiness. Even though we recognize all that, we still have that teacher in the back of our head who made us feel bad for even asserting that our bodies were ours to touch. So I think it's a lot of relearning and re-educating. And after so many years of a certain kind of training, you're allowed to have a period of time where you still aren't quite there yet. I think that it's fascinating that a lot of people are so sex positive, but still do. I think I, for myself as a sexual educator, had to work through years of shame. And it probably wasn't until my 30s that I completely got rid of that and said, no. And it was actually this comedian who said this joke that I was like, that is so on the nose. They said they had all the shame when it came to masturbation because they were religious. But then they realized like, God is very intelligent. So if God did not want us to touch ourselves, they would have put our genitals in the middle of our back where it's hard to reach. But instead, <laughs> it's in the most accessible place possible. Like I can just dangle my hand right now and it just naturally might fall there. A lot of men naturally have their hand on their genitals just as a place of comfort. So that must mean that God wanted us to touch ourselves. I have to agree with that because it is very simple and yet we learn in so many different ways to and still people are learning that it's that it's bad or naughty and what i really love about what you just said was that you have a you're allowed to give yourself grace and time and you don't have to suddenly snap your fingers and feel oh i have no shame i'm empowered because then you start shaming yourself for shaming yourself for shaming yourself <laughs> yes. yeah exactly so it's interesting i don't know if i would have guessed that the fall would be less horny. Yes. What What are your thoughts on that? Why do you think that's the case? My thoughts on this, like when you look at the report, so it actually, there's a correlation between holidays and horniness. So the summertime when we have time off, we're at the cottage, we then give ourselves a break to reconnect with who we are. Christmas time, the same thing happens. And so there's a spike in horniness in December and then in June. And those are our vacation months. So I think that we tend to look at self-pleasure as an escape, as a getaway, as a way to treat ourselves when everything else isn't knocking on our doors. Whereas in fall, that's start back to school. You know, fourth quarter for work gets gets busy again. It's the holiday rush for a lot of companies and gearing up for this really big, busy time of year. And so I think people, as they naturally start to put themselves second, you know, masturbation obviously goes to third, fourth or fifth. And that just goes to show that those are the times, if anything, we should be doubling down on our self-care, on our wellness routine, because life is going to not give us the space to do it. We have to create that space. And so you see when life naturally creates space for people, they take it. Um, and those are the months that we obviously non-coincidentally experience the most joy. So do you think that it's important to schedule the time for whether it's masturbation or or simply pleasure time for yourself during those busy months then? Oh, 100%. Do you still like what's your self-care routine? I don't know that it's necessarily a routine, but I do check in with myself pretty much daily. I try to make sure that I'm taking care of myself. And then there are times that it does slide. And for me, usually because I'm a writer, it'll be close to deadlines when I'm just kind of crazed, <laughs> as you understand, as yes. you just had a book come out. Um, and then I'll have these red flags that come up and I'll start noticing things like my sleep suffering and, and stuff like that. Uh, but for self-care, I mean, definitely masturbation is one. Also, I would say um, Good for you, walking. August. I'm so impressed. That's great. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. You know, I... 
I've come a long way, um, <laughs> pun intended. But I really, because I didn't masturbate until I turned 30 the first time. <gasps> wow. So I got a lot to make up for is what yes. I'm saying. Yeah. What was your introdu- introduction? Was it water? Was it a toy? Was it hands? It was a toy. Yeah. And it was interesting because I had... So it was very uh, intentional. It was intentional, yes. I hadn't realized that I had been feeling that horniness. I thought I was, I was misinterpreting it as feeling like blah. And it was a time when I was in a committed relationship but couldn't be physically with that person. And prior to that, I just kind of had easier access, I guess you could say. So I just felt like, I, I don't know. It was a lot of different messages. Um, a lot of different things contributed to it. But it, I had such a huge aha moment with that. It was such a beautiful experience that I literally wanted to tell everyone about this thing I discovered. Like it was <laughs> like only I knew about it. I mean, obviously, I didn't think that. But and since then, I have met numerous people who are late bloomers, too. And it's it's not that uncommon. Do you hear about that in your practice at all? Oh, of course. I mean, even in the self-pleasure report, men still masturbate at a much higher uh, percentage than women do. And people who are LGBT community members masturbate more than those who are heterosexual, specifically women. So I think heterosexual women in general still feel a lot of shame on both ends. Shame because they're like, well, my sexuality, my pleasure belongs to my partner, so I should save it for them. This isn't a thing that I should do just for me. And also shame because of the teacher, the mom, the parent, the whoever who told them that touching themselves was an absolute no. And that even in general of looking at your bodies, there's so many uh, women who have never taken a mirror and looked at their vulva and really explored it, like took take an ownership over that part of their body and that part of themselves. And mm-hmm. so they don't feel like treating themselves in that way because it's always been a no man's land. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And the power that comes from embracing that part of yourself is it's life changing for a lot of people. Whether you talk about it openly, I think when I talk about that, I have this new passion and now I can talk about it openly. I also like to make clear that not everyone needs to tell everyone, you know, you don't have to be on a podcast saying, I love masturbating. (laughs) You don't have to tell anyone. (laughs) Like, how do you know when you're in a place where the shame has has gone down and that you're in a really healthy, connected. What are some of the signs? I would say that when you feel yourself feeling less judgmental over others' happiness, Mm. when you hear somebody else and what they do, and that's why I think I love prudes. I'm not trying to push any prude into being more sex positive or more open. And I love what you just said. You don't have to. Pride doesn't mean that you have to go on a podcast and say, this is how I masturbate. This is how I orgasm. Pride can be that this is something that you have decided for you is just for the bedroom and you are much more happy that way and you don't discuss it outside of that. But once you're in the bedroom, you know your way around it. You know what works for you. It aids you in your life and it doesn't impinge on your health or happiness. It boosts those two things. That's when I think that you're in a good space. But when you hear how other people express themselves and especially if they're telling you they're happy and you meet that with criticism and judgment, that's when I'd probably say, you haven't figured it out for yourself yet. Because mm. once you figured it out, you recognize how long that took and how happy <laughs> you were. Yep. So you have so much appreciation for anybody else who's done the same, even if it looks different than what you have figured out for who you are. Yes, that's so true. I love it when I get messages from people saying, I didn't masturbate till this age or that age. And they just wanted to like privately say it to somebody because there is that. And whether it's masturbation or something else around your your sexuality and your sex life, it's it's kind of like seeing the world in color. You know, after it's maybe been a little sepia tone, like it just it opens up more of you. 
It's been fascinating, too. I think as clitoracy, like uh, clitoris literacy, we've all understood now more about this fascinating part of women's sexuality that cannot be ignored. As that has increased, I've actually heard a lot of women who don't like direct stimulation on their clitoris, do not like oral sex, actually feel left behind in this movement because now the way that they experience pleasure has been minimized. So we have to be careful not to create brushstroke statements when it comes to sex, even you know the, the, the self-pleasure report. If there are 25% of women who are not masturbating, we have to acknowledge that for a lot of those, it's not because they're ashamed. It's not because they don't like their bodies, not because they want to deprive themselves of joy. They just genuinely don't look at that as a healthy addition to their life and they don't have the drive to do it. And that's okay, and that's wonderful. And so we have to make space for everybody to own their truth, to come to terms with their sexuality and celebrate it in whatever way works for them. I appreciate that so much, so much. I think it's it's interesting because... A lot of people associate masturbation with that's the way that a woman orgasms. Mm -hmm. And I have found that when I have shared my story because I wrote about my book actually opens up with my masturbation story. And when I've shared it, a lot of times people then assume I'd never had an orgasm before that point because in their minds, if you don't do that, then how could you with a partner? You know, like we have these um, these stereotypes and the same thing as and as you said, there are people who are who are asexual and still have loving relationships. There are, you know, people who ha have um really pleasurable sex with their partner and they don't masturbate for some other reason, like you said, or, or maybe they aren't the clitoral people, you know, they, yes. they like everything I love much the more term internal. clitoral people. It's good, right? <laughs> yes. We should use that. For the clitoral folk. The clitoral folk. Yeah. I'm a clitoral folk, so I, <laughs> I can speak for those people. Yeah. It, and it's all good. It's all good. So I want to talk to you about what you have called a dating apocalypse. Mm. What do you mean by that, that we are in a dating apocalypse and an intimacy famine? I saw this in one of your wonderful videos. Yes, I will say attribution, dating apocalypse is vanity fairs. Okay. And so intimacy famine is like my thesaurus version mm -hmm. of that. But mm. the dating apocalypse uh, term came about as a result of Nancy Jo Sales, who actually put out a documentary last year called Swiped on HBO, which if you watch it, it's an hour and a half of why it is so damn hard right now. And I think that's extremely important to acknowledge um, that statistically people are waiting longer to couple up. People feel lonelier than ever um, and people are having less success creating connections via online dating apps than I think the appearances. Um, Hinge had a stat that said that 80 percent of people who have been online swiping have never found a long-term romantic relationship as a result of being on a dating app. And it was like, out of every one in 500 million, that's not the stat, it's some crazy number, one in some million um, uh, matches that are made result in a phone number exchange. So that means that a lot of time you're just on there kind of speaking into a vacuum, connecting with nobody. Like you might connect with somebody, but you're not actually getting a chance to say, hi, human. Hi, human. Who are you? Like, let's actually figure this out. So that is all to say, I think it's important, just like in 2008, we all acknowledge that it was a very hard economic time, that getting a job, that making your mortgage payments was difficult. And so if you were experiencing that, it's not because you were lazy, worthless, and not a successful human being who couldn't provide for their family. The times are hard right now. However, now that you know that, what are you going to do to work within them so that you can be part of the few who actually does receive success and find what you're looking for during this time? 
So I think that there's a balance to be struck here. You don't want to gaslight people and say like, well, come on, figure it out. It's never been easier. You have all these options. It actually statistically is harder. But now that you know that, what are you going to do with it? I love the fact that you feature five women in your book because instead of it being, it's not a, a an advice book just full of a list of tips and here's some exercises, you actually get to follow a journey. Yes. Tell us how you came up with this idea to, you followed Courtney, Deshaun, Priscilla, Stephanie, and Maya. Oh, it's so lovely to hear their names. Shout out to my girls. I just actually saw them on Friday. It was Priscilla's 30th birthday. Um, they are, they were important to me because one, the way I got actually into this business 13 years ago was I was like yourself. I went to a, a Catholic school, which made that wasn't your truth, but I had a very repressive sexual upbringing. Not a lot of information was given. I wasn't comfortable asking questions. And there's two things you can do with repression. You can either become a nun or you can find whatever tools that are available to you and a little sneakier to satiate your desire to learn more. And so for me, that meant that porn and fiction books and fiction TV shows were my sexual educator. And when I turned 19, I had seven sexual partners, zero orgasm. I felt so disconnected from myself, my body, my truth. And I was like, okay, either one of two things. I can keep going forward in this path or I can press the stop button and re-educate myself. And so I went to a library, started reading a bunch of books. And I'm like, wow, there's great information here, but it's so boring. It's so dry. It's everything that bad sex is, right? It's predictable. It's monotonous. It's static. Um, there's no interesting storylines or smells. I'm not getting lost in it. Like sex sells, but sex education does not. So from that Amen. point forward, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I am going to utilize what the media does, but actually use truth. Instead of using um, Kim Kardashian and fake storylines and multi-orgasmic first-time experiences, I'm still going to tell you the interesting story and get you invested in the human interest of it um, and tell you all the sights, sounds, and smells. But instead of hitting you over the head with some BS, it's actually going to be factual. And so that's just – this book is – to me, like another progression of that, because instead of me just giving you the stats, tips and figures, because I love those things. I like empirical data, but the world does not or else <laughs> right. we wouldn't have we'd have more shows that were just statistical shows. So I thought that, hey, instead of just saying, here's what you can do, let me show you how real people who were starting from ground zero with no prior information. And if anything, a lot of pain that they had to overcome first, how they were able to use this information to better their lives. Mm, we learn so much from stories. I really believe that that is how we change the world, why movies and novels are so powerful. And and certainly real, true stories are so impactful because they, they stay with you. You don't remember necessarily all the stats, but you will remember, oh, this happened and maybe that's possible for me. Uh, you talk a lot about the importance of having a dating strategy. Why is that so important? Obviously, if you're that statistic about one in some kind of million of a connection, it sounds like you need to be a little more proactive. But what do you mean by having a dating strategy? Yeah, like if I, I say this, like the advice that we give to people who are struggling in dating, if you came to me and you're like, girl, I haven't been figuring this out. It's been really rough. I have a date tonight. I actually really care about this person. I've gotten ghosted the past five times. What do I do? I'm going to be like, you know, in August, just be yourself. And we're like not acknowledging that whatever <laughs> self you've shown up for consistently has not gotten you the results you're looking for. And if we flip it and it's now cooking and you say, 
I cannot make rice to save my life. I've tried five times. It has failed every single time. What should I do? Make I would, rice. I wouldn't exactly. I wouldn't say do what you've been doing. Yeah. We would start to strategize, come up with a new plan, you know, get you some new tools. We would, I would sit with you. I would teach you. We'd practice in low risk environments. I wouldn't say, hey, make it for Thanksgiving dinner um, if you haven't done it success- successfully before. So I think when it comes to dating, it's like we ignore all of that. We then all of a sudden look at it like you're just supposed to know. Even when it comes to sex, the same thing. Like, you're just supposed to know how to please other people, how to please yourself. You're supposed to just find your partner. Like, all of the dating advice is kind of with the just frame. Just be yourself. Just put yourself out there. Just don't look too hard. It will just happen for you. What if you're not a just person? What if that's not your story? Because there are people I acknowledge that that is their story. They just went to Starbucks one day, and they just saw this barista, and then they just got married. Um, That wasn't my story, though. So I had to come up with a strategy. I had to enlist the help of experts. I had to study. I had to read books. I had to practice constantly. And then eventually I was able to show up as the best version of myself who could draw the kind of connections that I knew I was meant for. And that's what I mean by strategy. I love that you said the best version of yourself because I think sometimes the the word strategy, when people hear it, they think they have to be somehow that they are not naturally, that they have to put on a mask and they have to learn these tricks and they have to be a pickup artist or something. How do you maintain that authenticity and also strategize at the same time? It's building the foundation. Like the half of the book, The Game of Desire, is really just about you. And that is because the majority of the work has to do with understanding, loving, accepting, challenging, and changing yourself. And that is the base of what it takes to be a good partner and to find a good partner. And so that's when you can employ the extra tips and tricks on top of that. When you know who you are, you love who you are, you know who works best with you. And now it's a matter of drawing the right kinds of people in because you know you can provide them with an awesome experience because you know who you are. And you've targeted that kind of person who you know you can be a good partner for. So I think that the strategy part um, just really means you don't have to leave it up to luck. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that because you're working on yourself. So you're benefiting your own development, too, regardless of who you're meeting and when, which is really powerful. I love that you have so much self-analysis at the beginning and you have quizzes and stuff like that, which is always they're, they're fun. And they're I love thoughtful. a quiz. Oh, oh, they're so fun. I love a quiz. They're so fun. <laughs> completely. What would you say are some of the most important things to know about ourselves? Like, say, let's say that we're just starting with your book or with the dating strategies and wanting to meet somebody, um, what are some of the things that we should be understanding about who we are? My favorites are love language. Oh, my gosh, how incredible. Mm -hmm. I love that uh, Gary Chapman has created, to me, our first universal understanding of ourselves as loving individuals. Because before that, when you ask somebody, like, what do you like, you know, what do you like in love? Everyone's like long walks on the beach, puppies. Like we're having these like mm-hmm. vague answers. I actually don't even speak to the heart of what we truly need to feel successful, loved, and calm in a romantic connection. And so love languages is our first way of actually expressing, hey, here's kind of what I'm looking for. You know, we have a yeah. billion different words to describe our career selves, right? Like we are good at tech. We are great at math. We have good problem solving skills, good interpersonal skills. We are leaders. There's a billion different words to describe what kind of person we are in a career environment. But our intimate selves, we literally have nothing to work with. So I think love languages is a great one to utilize because if you asked a room of 50 people, I think 25 would actually know what theirs is. Yeah, I think it's important to know 
how we feel loved, right? Yes. It's interesting. I was smirking a little bit because I did an episode. I have mixed feelings about the love languages. Oh, I'd love to hear it. I very much respect that people love them. And I think if they work for you, that's so wonderful. And I really appreciate what you just said, you know, that we are thinking about that. Um, I did a, an episode about the where they came from um, and that they had because it was kind of in the midst of my purity culture series I was doing uh, that they can you know they lack some nuance and stuff like that I won't I won't get into super detail I just think it's really cool that we can have these different perspectives and still see this value in what the message is which is right to understand what is it that makes you feel loved what is it that makes other people feel loved right like that's that's not something that we really grow up I don't think, being taught anywhere. Oh, hell no. Yeah, we don't learn about emotional intelligence at all. Yeah. I I like love languages because the thing about language is it has to be universally understood. I can have a word, like, for example, I love orgasm recipes. That's another, like, I'm a big fan of once you have a word for something, and that's why labels are important. When you go to a grocery store, it's like, yes, a Fuji apple is more than a Fuji apple, but I got to know when I'm buying something, is it Fuji or is it a green apple? And then once I know I want green apples, I can go in and look for the right kind. And of course, on the nuances, but Mm -hmm. those labels are important for fast, easy consumption and for people to be able to identify and also feel like they're a part of something. So I like it for that reason. But yes, as you get more versed at it, you should create more nuances within it. But if I have a word for how I orgasm and I say to you, I like staging. If you don't know what staging is, I know what it is. It doesn't actually have the same effectiveness rate. So love languages, I think, is the first one that a good percentage of people actually understand what that means and how to apply that label into an action. They're they're like mainstream. Yeah. And and that's so true that we need to understand terms around these things. We don't have if we don't have the word for something that we can't really. But I agree. It could be better. Yeah, it could be better. I'm just a champion of its popularity and that being people's way, because I think other people's way of universally describing their intimate selves Mm -hmm. is horoscopes. And I super don't agree with those. Yeah. So and horoscopes is such a shallow. It is not it, 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 it does not actually explore you as a person at all. It makes an assumption based on really arbitrary facts. Right. And they're all pretty. I think that people tend to use those less as like jump off points for change and more as a space to say, well, this is why way I am the way that I am. Uh, yeah, so I, I could see that for sure. Yeah. But I would say love languages, um, apology languages, your big five personality assessments, a really, really important one. Big five personality assessment is the one where you it's like coming up with the main five kind yes. of traits, right? Yes. Yeah. So Which personality are you? It's based on the OCEAN acronym. So it actually just says that all five, all personality traits can fall under openness, conscientiousness, extroversion versus introversion, agreeableness versus disagreeableness and neuroticism versus emotional stability. And so that's a snapshot way of looking at yourself. And it really helps you like pinpoint why you experience life the way that you do. So, for example, I'm not very open. I have become very conscientious through work. I'm not naturally very conscientious. I'm naturally very extroverted. I am not agreeable. And that was a big part of the puzzle for why I was failing romantically. And I had to acknowledge that about myself, that I am the person that my disagreeableness works in the workplace because I'm an innovator. That's why I'm like, I can do sex ed better. I can do this better. I'm going to do this in a unique way. Like I see what the trends are and I say, I want to change that. But in a relationship, you can't have somebody who's constantly contending. 
who's always going against the grain. Like you need somebody who's prioritizing partnership versus like having their way and all their needs met. So I think that the big five is a good way to say, oh, like I'm actually a little neurotic and I can see how that could negatively impact me in a close partnership. I might be able to also see how that could benefit me in other ways. So it's a good way just to get a picture of who you are and an acknowledgement of the role you play in relationships because we tend to do a great job of identifying how other people are messing up and where they're coming up short in their toxic behavior, but it's hard for the mirror to see itself. That's so true. That's so true. So if you do this analysis and you realize, oh, my neuroticism is playing a negative role in my dating life, would the goal then be to just practice more self-awareness around it? Or is the goal to try to like change a bit, you know, work through some things that may be fueling the neuroticism? Yeah, I think both. I mean, there's a, there's a level of acceptance because we don't have to change everything in life. And some imperfections, again, like disagreeable people are why we have a new iPhone coming out. You know, it's somebody who's like, this should be better. Mm-hmm. And so there is value to that. But there's also that person like Steve Jobs amazing um you know he was an avoidantly attached person who probably was very disagreeable and that results in a lot of great innovations but not so great personal relationships Mm -hmm. um and not so great leadership skills in terms of making a a healthy environment he may have made a progressive environment so it depends on what you're looking for so if you are somebody like your neuroticism might actually fuel you i'm trying to think of where neuroticism could be a benefit can you think of one Neuroticism sometimes to me shows a lot of care and passion. You know, I mean, like if you really, really care about something to the point that you're like, I will do everything. You know, if it if it really shows a big, big heart, I think there could be a connection potentially. I think neuroticism in the arts can be wonderful. Yeah. So there we go. Yes. I think that the throwing yourself into it, that having a really massive emotional response could be a very beautiful attribute to why you excel in the arts. And so once you identify that you are neurotic, you can, I think it's more about honing as to where that is positive and identifying where it's not and seeking out help, maybe going to a therapist to really identify where this emotional instability came from, how you can control it more and understand it. And then also, once you know that about yourself, it's about pairing yourself in environments where it's not going to lean on that insecurity of yours. Like I am a disagreeable person. I cannot be paired with someone who's disagreeable. My husband is the most agreeable person on the planet, and I learn a lot through him, and I see a lot of my behavior and how he operates in the world and how easy it is versus me who gets in an argument every time I go to Subway Sandwich. I'm like, oh, (laughs) I can kind of see how, you know, his way of life is better, and I I learn that way. But if I was with a disagreeable partner, we'd be fighting all the time, and which would disallow me from actually examining my own behavior. Sure, and he probably learns from you, too, because if you're always agreeable, then sometimes your viewpoint gets lost or you yes. don't do as much self-analysis. So I like the, the yin-yang sort of balancing that can happen. That sounds really awesome. I'd love to shift gears just a little bit for our listener question that we have that ties into this topic as well. It comes from a listener who wrote this. Can you give me some tips on how to handle painful intercourse as a result of menopausal changes? It really sucks, and I don't want to do hormone replacement therapy. Uh, She apparently, I asked a couple questions. She tried silicone-based lube, and she said that she has um, what she considers a strong pelvic floor from core workouts and breathing exercises. Here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Laura, thanks so much for your question. You know, I've recently spoken with August about um, how, you know, even in 2019, less states are required to give medically accurate sex 
information and education. And that's to our youth. I can, I'm here to say, sadly, it's, you know, when it comes to menopause and sexual symptoms and what to expect and what we can do, um, we're sort of equally way behind in terms of education and information. And so um, I'm glad that you're asking it. And it sounds like you're already aware and doing a lot of great things um, in terms of, you know, using a silicone lube, uh, working on your pelvic floor and, and having a strong core workouts and a practice of, of breathing and meditation. I mean, these are all great things that I hope others listening realize that um, there are things you can be doing on your own when and if you're going through those symptoms of perimenopause and menopause, that can be certainly helpful from a sexual health perspective. But I also want to, you know, consider and give you options of things you might not have tried. And I can appreciate you amongst the many, many, many women um, don't want to take any hormone replacement therapy. And in any way, I'm not advocating one way, one way or the other. Um, I'm just trying to indicate that there, you know, have you considered that you might have a topical option in terms of um, uh, low-dose cream, tablet, or ring that would be basically directly inserted into your vagina. And the idea there is that it's a much, much, much lower dose than when we take it by mouth systemically. Um, so a lot of the concerns there are for um, heart disease and cancer you know, I think it's important to talk to your doctor and look at the recent studies and get the information. And it doesn't mean in any way you have to go in this direction, but I just want to highlight that there's a big difference between systemic hormone replacement therapy, oral, versus localized directly to um, sort of the vaginal tissue, the vulva. So just want to put that out there so that you might ask, because again, you're just looking for relief of a, the common symptoms of menopause, which is because of the lack of estrogen, uh, there's thinning of the vulvar tissues, and often uh, less lubrication and, um, you know, the discomfort and pain. And so I think first and foremost, we always know, hopefully we always know that women in general take longer than men to get aroused, but especially postmenopausal, I can't highlight enough focusing on and again, arousal is, you know, our biggest sex organs are brain, right? So it's not in terms of just direct physical touching. It's getting yourself in the mood. It's the sexy banter, flirty banter you're having with your partner and sort of, you know, you know, sort of think of it as um, bathing in it or simmering in it a bit all day, like that sexual energy and vibe, because that in and of itself is going to be part of the turn on that leads to what we, you know, the sexual response, the vasocongestion which is the blood flow and lubrication. So I think I really want to highlight that where you're taking time, more time, and just seeing the opportunity of exploration um, sort of head to toe about building your arousal, knowing, as I said, it's often very much mental. So it's how you're chatting or talking or dirty sex talking, whatever it might be with your partner. And of course, as I said, starting much earlier in the day. Um, and another thing that you haven't yet tried, but I definitely want to recommend, is a vaginal moisturizer. A vaginal moisturizer is definitely different than a vaginal lubricant, which is something that you use right at the time that you're anticipating penetration. A vaginal moisturizer is something you use you know, several times a week, and I can just certainly say that when you start to use it, I would definitely wear a panty liner because it's not uncommon in the beginning that there can be some vaginal discharge. Um, but that ultimately, that is creating sort of globally, and not just for the focus on penetration, but sort of, you know, what is it, globally, sort of systemically, that idea of having overall more lubrication. Um, because 
that helps with the elasticity of um, the vaginal tissues. So what I can say is definitely try a vaginal moisturizer if you haven't yet, and certainly focus on increasing the length of time of arousal. And the other piece I think is important worth mentioning is unfortunately once sex becomes painful, it's a very natural human response to hold tension. We call it anticipatory anxiety. You're thinking already, I mean, this is one of the things that can affect desire as well, is because if you think something's going to be painful, of course we don't want it. So, and then there's the added sense of you're probably in your head, like, is it going to hurt? How's it going to hurt? And you're, I always sort of say there's nothing sexy about that kind of thinking, right? So it's to appreciate you may have some anticipatory anxiety on board and to just be mindful of where your thoughts are at. And as I say that, it's also the effect that has on our muscles, right? Because the thinking, the mind-body connection is also often leading to increased tensing, tightening, whether it's your pelvic floor, it might also be in your legs or in your buttocks. So again, focusing on that phases of relaxation you know, and, you know, often from a sex therapy perspective, we might initially take penetration off the table because that's when we'd extinguish that anticipatory response that, oh, we're getting intimate and this is feeling good and this is going to lead to sex and in your mind, penetrative sex. And so you're anticipating and your mind, your body might be tensing up for preparation for what it perceives is going to be uh, the penetration and what will be painful. So taking sex off the table and sex being penetration and just focusing on pleasuring, which is again, our culture. So performance and orgasm focused. It's like the foundation of it all is about giving and receiving pleasure. So focusing on pleasuring, taking for a time penetration off the table. Um, and you know, that's another way of exploring the ways that increases your arousal, but it's hopefully also going to extinguish if there's an anticipatory response. And the other thing goes back to this general idea of, as we say, if you don't use it, you lose it. So whether it's with a partner or on your own, the more frequently you're sexually active, creating, again, the vasocongestion, the arousal response, um, the more you're going to have a positive response. And so I know I said a lot, um, but I really want you to realize that menopause, you know, people are sexual into their 80s and their 90s. Menopause is just a life transition, but in no way should indicate or there's no no reason to be having painful sex. So try on these ideas that I'm talking about. And when if it's not getting better, definitely reach out to your doctor. And as always, would love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I love what she said about really prioritizing pleasure, potentially taking intercourse off the table um, while she's, you know, exploring other things and and also the anxiety that can come up. Shan, I'm I'm curious, as people are are dating, if they have an issue related to sexual pain or um, maybe it, it is a menopause related dryness or something of that that nature, how do you talk about that? How do you decide when to bring it up? I, first of all, loved everything about that response. It was so thorough and so caring and so many incredible options. And you're so fortunate to have someone like that as a part of your show regularly. That was absolutely incredible. I get this. I'm going to go about this in a a slightly bizarre angle. Um, So whenever people say to me about testing out polyamory, for example, and they're like, it's just like there's so many more conversations. There's so many more nuances. It, I, There's so much more to predict. So how do you actually navigate that? Because you don't have a blueprint and you don't have agreed upon rules. And I would say in many ways, you're actually more fortunate to be going that route versus subscribing to monogamy where there's assumptions 
on what works. There's assumptions on what people are looking for and how they want to be celebrated. So anytime that you're going through any kind of nuance, where it is like sexual pleasure, it is bodily changes, it is new desires in dating, you're now getting to do what most people don't do because they're in that fold of assumptions. You're having to have these conversations. You're having to ask yourself these questions. And by doing that, you're going to end up with a better result something that's actually more true to you and actually more pleasurable and designed specifically for your needs because you are forced to thereby have these discussions and go through this exploration. So whenever I meet somebody who is going through a bodily change, I'm like, good for you. You're lucky. You're lucky because you're getting to actually have this intentionality that so many of us are on autopilot and take for granted that we do need that intentionality. We do need to ask ourselves those questions. We do need to see if we're enjoying something. And the fact that you're being... Um, Encouraged to do that is a plus in many ways. Yeah. The the value of having vulnerable conversations too, right, is so powerful for for intimacy and for growth. Which, we need them all uh, the time. Yeah. We constantly need to be asking our partners, is sex painful? Is this comfortable for you? Have you been enjoying it? Even if you do orgasm, is that what the goal is? Has the experience of all above all else been comfortable, inviting, and something that you want to continue to do? And so I think that a lot of people are dying to have that discussion and your body is just forcing it in a, in a more or less comfortable way. But nonetheless, I think that the end result is going to be a better connection to your sexual self, a better connection to your partner, as long as you approach it just how the doctor um, has suggested with patience, with grace, with different trial and error. And also, too, it's joint accountability. It's, hey, I'm going to be trying these different lubricants, but in return, I need more arousal time. I need some sexy texts. I need foreplay to extend beyond the bedroom to chore play. You know, seeing you do things around the house might <laughs> really play. turn me on. Yeah. And so I like that, that element of let's reset. You know, yeah. maybe we had a thing that we were doing for X amount of years that we both agreed upon. That's not working for me anymore. We need a hard reset and let's have fun finding out what our new normal is. But even once you find your normal, have joy and still talking and exploring mm. and trying new things. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that so much. Yeah, the seeing it as almost an adventure, yes. which isn't to say that pain is fun, of course. I mean, this is a challenge, but that you get to look at it from this lens of we're working on this together. We're going to try new things and that there can be rewards and there usually are when you commit is huge because I think when you're in a darker space of, oh, it hurts, it's nice to know that there is a horizon and that there's something to look forward to. Yes. I think there's just the joys in that. You never like talk to a teenager who's going through all these problems and there's something fond about it that you're like, oh, I remember when that was so important to me. Mm -hmm. And I remember all those feelings. And there's something beautiful about that discomfort I had with my changing body or my first heartbreak. There, There's something joyful about that because we found out who we are through that and we learned so much and it created a version of ourselves that we actually love now. So I think that, you know, your 80-year-old self is going to look back at this time and be like, oh, that was incredible. What a fun time. How amazing. So cute. So back. cute. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. We were so young, so cute, so yeah. naive. Uh, right? Yeah. Right. So besides obviously buying your book, The Game of Desire, Five Surprising Secrets to Dating with Dominance, could you give listeners a couple of tips, some some that tend to work um, generally for most anyone who anyone who's feeling overwhelmed, like they aren't making those connections in the dating realm? Yeah, I would say my easiest tip is the two to one. For every one question someone asks you, ask two in return. 
you have mastered this as a result of being a podcast host. You understand that the magic element to getting along with other people is that people's favorite topic is themselves, their interests, or their world. And so if you're talking to somebody about them and asking about them and engaging with them and actually listening, number one, they're more excited. And two, you actually learn more as the listener. So that, I think, if you're at a loss of how do I get back into this, how do I make connections and navigate it, that's important. But when you do have those two questions, like really, like you said, you, you never want to err on the side of too agreeable. You know, find those spaces to really assert your opinion, your perspective, and live in a, a sense of exploration with that. So the two to one, I think, is a really great one. And also, too, you have to practice constantly. You can't expect to be able to make an incredible lasagna for Thanksgiving dinner if you've never made it before. I mean, you can try, but a smart person would have practiced 10 times more before that day and then actually prep to make sure that when it mattered, they could do it to the best of their abilities. That's the same with flirting. If you're not flirting all of the time, when you see someone that you actually are attracted to, it's not going to come second nature to you. That muscle memory has not been developed. So I actually think that inviting more flirtatiousness into your life all the time, one, brings more joy because flirting is just communication plus sparks. And flirting might just be an extra compliment that makes someone feel a little bit better. So flirt more, ask more questions, um, and get to know yourself more. Those are my hard three. Those are great tips. Thank you so much for joining me today and for your important work. I really appreciate it. I think it's needed. Tell people where they can learn more about you and, and get your book. I'm going to say go to feelmore.global for the, the Tanga self-pleasure report. I think there's so much freedom in that. Even this, one of the stats was talking about how many people masturbate in what they think is a weird way. And that percentage is in the 40s. And so I think there's so, we don't talk about it enough. We don't have the discussion. Even you and me, we talk, but we didn't say I get, I take off half my clothes and then I do this, I do that. Like all the mechanics of actually what we do is a mystery to us on what others are doing in the bedroom. And I think a lot of lifting that veil of shame comes from understanding that you're not alone mm -hmm. and you're not weird. Yeah. So just like as an interest area, I would say go to that. I'll put a link down in the show notes too. Oh, I would love that. Yeah. And then you could put your favorite stat down there. I would love to know what which one piqued your interest. Okay, I will. Yeah. My favorite is definitely people who masturbate with fruits. How many people there are out there. Oh, my gosh. That's interesting. Yes. Okay. So now everyone's going to rush there. I yeah, think. to go because find out. Like, Wait yeah. a minute. Or they're thinking I'm not the only one. <laughs> yes. Which is uh, also cool. Yes. And then I know you also have your own website. Yes. And so uh, I would say like, like a freebie. So if you go to thegameofdesire.com slash workbook, a lot of the quizzes I mentioned today, including Big Five, Attachment Theory, Love Language, Apology Language, Orgasm Recipe, it's all there. It takes two hours, but you can come back to it. You can save it and come back to it. And I think it might be the most worthwhile thing that you do in terms of finding not only who your ideal partner is, but becoming your ideal self. Beautiful. Good luck with everything moving forward. And everyone, I hope you do check out Shan's book, her YouTube channel, and that incredible study. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please hit subscribe if you haven't, wherever you're listening. And I would so appreciate a simple review and a rating. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com. 